Hi, welcome to episode four of the Wilderness Medic Podcast. My name is Daniel and today I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Nathan Smith. Um, So Nathan is a research fellow at the University of Manchester and um, he has done um, a a lot of research looking at um, how... uh, how we cope um, in demanding and challenging settings. Um, he's done work with NASA. Um, he's worked um, in the Antarctic, um, looking at um, elite military personnel and extreme medics. Um, and it's very relevant for what's going on right now. Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com. Expedition resources, wilderness medicine blog, and much more. So, hi Nathan, thanks very much for joining uh, joining me on the Wilderness Medic podcast today. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, well, thank you, uh, uh, Daniel. So, what are we? Kind of six, seven days into lockdown. Um, so, kind of busy yes. at home. Um, yeah, it's certainly it's, it's certainly a bit different, isn't it? <laughs> it definitely is that. Yeah. And so you you work as a um, as a research fellow in psychology at the University of Manchester, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I'm a research fellow in psychology, security, and trust is the the long title. Um, and so my my work there really focuses on kind of understanding human behaviour under conditions of extreme stress, um, and that's principally in kind of extreme environments. So you know all the kind of the polar regions, space, deserts, jungles, all that sort of stuff. Not so much being stuck in your in your front room, then. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's for for quite a few people. I think that's a different kind of extreme at the moment. Yeah, and so what what we thought would be interesting would be to sort of draw upon some of the research and and things you've been up to, and um, also see how we can apply it to obviously what's going on um, at the moment. There's certainly extreme stress both inside and outside of of hospitals, um, and and sort of see, see how we go really. So. I guess to start with, Jonna. So your, your your official title of psychology, security, and trust sounds sounds a bit foreboding. But so, what, what do you sort of look at on a day to day basis? Yeah, so I suppose that title um, might not be the most accurate for for my role. So I guess half of my job, really, um, when I initially started at Manchester, um, kind of post leaving the uh, Ministry of Defence at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. Um, focus really on military and security settings. So how to support people in high-risk operational environments um, and keep them happy and healthy. There is some challenges to to studying people in those settings. So we actually use um, expeditionary populations to try and understand some of the the demands that might be faced in defence and security operations. Um, So if if we kind of extrapolate across, you know, if we're looking at people operating in Antarctic and Arctic environments, then we can probably learn something about military personnel deployed to, you know, Arctic conditions. That, that's the kind of comparison. Um, so that's that's a sort of half of my work um, at Manchester. And then the other half really focuses on, um, I'd say quite a lot of it really focuses on space flight. Um, so hmm. looking at astronauts and cosmonauts on the space station, um, and then other space-related projects, so people living in confinement chambers um, down in Antarctica, that sort of stuff. So some of that stuff will be particularly relevant for people who are having to self-isolate as well, so we can draw on that a bit yeah. later maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you've also sort of more recently been uh, developing a, a resource online to help people's mental health and look at some of the psychology that they're either facing or, or may face in, in the coming weeks and months to do with the coronavirus. Yeah. So we got um, a couple of weeks ago. So it's it's all, for us, like we've been doing this research on kind of human performance in extreme settings, and it's a fairly niche topic. Um, it doesn't quite you know, there's, there's lots of other people doing psychological research in other domains um, that, you know, it's a lot more relevant a lot more of the time, maybe. Um, and our work um, recently has become more interesting, I think, to a lot more people just because a lot more people are facing extreme situations. Um, so we got contacted by um, some people in the NHS who were dealing with the COVID-19 response um, to pull together a rapid um, like just-in-time training program for staff that might be drafted in to, to fill gaps in the NHS provision. Sure, I am. Um, so that might be kind of psychologists and, and junior doctors that are graduating quickly um, that are being pulled in and might not have as much experience in operating in these kind of high-pressure situations. Um, so what we've been doing for a couple of weeks now is developing materials with input from our NHS colleagues um, and an international group of experts in kind of human performance in extreme situations. Um, and all that is being uploaded to a website called supporttheworkers.org. Um, it's quite practical. Um, it's it's not supposed to make everyone a psychologist. It's more about sure, yeah. we rapidly communicate that might be helpful to people in these in this this the current context. Yes, and um I guess uh Sort of what what sort of situations have you um, have you drawn upon to kind of help help with that? You mentioned that you've done some some work in in the Antarctic as well. Yeah, so we've I mean we the, the stuff that we've talked about. So we have different experts commenting on different um, areas of the, the, the this brief that we were given. Um, so some of our stuff on kind of extreme stresses, we've pulled on research that we've done with people, you know in quite dangerous situations in high altitude mountain ranges and polar regions crossing deserts um, flying in space and, and using some of what we learn about how people function in those situations and what we understand about staying well and being resilient to those demands right. um, so, so we've talked a bit about that and then other colleagues um, other colleagues that have got lots of experience doing work on debriefing in kind of military and emergency medicine settings have, have pulled stuff together um, there's people that have done lots of stuff on decision-making in crisis situations. So after kind of disasters, terrorist incidents and that sort of stuff, um, they've provided input on how to make good decisions in these kind of high-paced, high-pressure environments. Mm. Sure. And I suppose looking at uh, sort of things like closely communication and, yeah. and the human factors involved. Yeah. Okay. I think it'd be really interesting to delve a bit deeper into, into some of those things. And so resilience is, I mean, for a few years now, it's kind of been the buzzword, hasn't it? In, <laughs> you know, in healthcare, where, business, wherever you look, it's all about, you know, increasing your resilience. But what does that really mean, do you think? Yeah. So that, and that's a really, really good point. Um, there's, there's a lot of confusion or there has been a lot of confusion about what resilience is. I think more recently there's been some progress in that. So there was a really good paper published a few years ago, I think it was 2017, in, in um, Nature's Human Behaviour Journal. Um, and it, it actually clarifies a little bit about the basis of resilience. So they talk about it as a dynamic process that involves a person's physiological function um, as well as how they think and feel, so their psychology and their social context. And it really relies on the interaction of all those things um, 
to enable a person to have what they term good mental health outcomes following adversity. Um, and and so if we look at you know that part of it, I think one of the issues myself and other colleagues have had with the the term resilience over the past few years is it often puts the emphasis on the individual um, and and them being either resilient or not. And if they're not resilient, it's sort of seen as a criticism. Or something they failed at doing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you bring in the social aspect of it, that's that's a really critical component because a person's environment can shape their resilience quite significantly. Um, and one of my friends and colleagues uses the example of a, a flower. Um, a flower can be resilient if it's given sunshine and rain. Um, but if you take those things away, it won't be. So, you know, there's this kind of the environmental aspect of it is a, a real big contributor to that. Yeah, no, that makes sense, particularly with a lot of what's obviously happening with the NHS, I suppose, is how much resilience does a system have mm. as well. It's, it's equally yeah. equally relevant, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there's sort of levels of this and you can go up to from the individual to the team level and is the team resilient, which will depend on how individually resilient its members are. Um, and then you can move higher up the level to the the organisational level, um, and then you're starting to look at kind of staffing and resources, um, the quality of the leadership, um, and, and all those different factors that will influence um, the resilient function of of its members. Um, in this case, the NHS staff. Sure. Yeah. And, and to me, at least, a lot of a lot of this is also involves quite a lot of inward self discovery and, and reflection. I guess to sort of look at your coping mechanisms and I suppose also also kind of redefine what is normal at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really like, I think that's a really important point actually, Daniel. So, you know, I saw some comments earlier today about how quite a lot of psychology is quite basic. Um, And I think, you know, in some ways it is like we all, we all can think and feel and therefore once someone outlines something that seems intuitive, then it is quite basic. But in these sort of times, in these situations that we're all finding ourselves in now, actually taking the time to go back and revisit some of that fairly basic stuff could be quite powerful and quite helpful. Um, and just it might just enable that kind of self-care a little bit better. Um, whereas if we don't do that, we might just get swept away in you know, the, the quite high-paced situation we find ourselves in, or at least the people that are on the front line find themselves in at the moment. Sure. And are there any practical things that, that you specifically can recommend that people can do, I don't know, after they've got back from a shift or if they have a spare five minutes or if or if they're self-isolating and they've just got nothing to do apart from try and occupy themselves? Because that's equally a problem. You know, if you're just left alone with your thoughts on your own for a long time, that can, you know, once you get in a sort of an anxiety loop, that can be equally difficult to, to deal with sometimes. Yeah. So I think, I guess, I mean, there's quite a lot in there, but for, for people you know, transitioning in and out of a shift every day. I think the really critical thing is to um, try and be ready for the, the next day's work. And that means when you're in that transition phase, when you're getting home, is having a good routine to switch off and practice some good self-care. So trying to optimize the type of food you're eating, making sure you're having a healthy diet if you can, getting plenty of sleep. So, you know, not becoming kind of sleep deprived progressively over time. Um trying to find some something to do away from thinking about work all, all those kind of fairly simple things but if we don't plan for it then we might not do them um, so trying to, to set some kind of routines in place to allow that to happen um, I guess the 
the prolonged isolation and confinement, one of the big challenges of, of that is the, the monotony and boredom that can set in. Um, so, you know, at home, trying to find ways to stimulate yourself um, in terms of like your intellectual stimulation. So one of the big challenges will be if you're bored, then your mind starts to wander and, and things can get kind of progressively worse um, if, if you've not yeah. got something interesting to do. So, you know, use see this as see this as an opportunity, which we might never have again, to have a bit of free time to pursue something novel and new, um, learn some new skills. Um, yeah, and yeah, this is obviously something that people up on the International Space Station or, you know, people who are overwintering maybe in, in the in the Antarctic might might face. What sort of things um, when you were doing your research there did, did you come across as their sort of strategies? Yeah, so they're they're quite creative with with different things. And this isn't anything new, you know, that there's that really good stories of Shackleton and Scott's teams when they were going down to the Antarctic hundred years ago, um, where they were doing, you know, they were putting on theatrical shows, they were having these kind of long drawn out rambling conversations about nothing, but you know, they'd sparked, they'd set some um, topics to talk about that none of them really knew anything about. And they would just came up with, with sort of ideas and, and stuff to talk about on this issue. Um, they used to play music. They used to, um, Scott's team actually developed their own magazine, the South Polar times. Um, so they, 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 there's always been this kind of creativity. I think now, you know, with technology and online learning and all that sort of stuff, there's lots of ways you, know, you could mm-hmm. learn a new instrument. Um, I think people do that in kind of space simulation um, studies when they're confined. They use that opportunity uh, to learn okay. an instrument or mm-hmm. um, learn how to bake or do, do something um, that you've really wanted to do that you've not had time to do in the past. Yeah, I suppose it's trying to find the, the positives in a, in a negative situation as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so reappraisal is something that we talk about quite often um and that capacity to it's not just about positive thinking necessarily um but it's about acknowledging that there's always more than one way to look at a situation um and one way might be better than another um and so can you find that way that's slightly better than than the the less good way yeah i think that's something that that really resonates actually because you you can you can have a certain paradigm in your sort of thinking and interpreting the information you're giving, and you and then it sort of can almost go through a filter, can't it? And you and you, you you sort of consciously or unconsciously are just selecting the information that that fits that paradigm, and that can either be a positive or a negative thing. But it's, I suppose it's trying to be a bit more open-minded and, and think yeah. in a sort of new way. Yeah, and and it and one one of the really nice things about that is it actually empowers us as well um, because in this situation where there's quite a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of things that are outside our control, if we have the perspective that we can change how we think about a situation, then that gives us something that we can control. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that's quite empowering and quite powerful in itself. No, definitely. And um, something that we sort of we touched upon a little bit, but we were sort of thinking about, you know, at the ends of shifts and sort of the importance of, I guess, debriefing and not, Try, trying at least not to take your work home and looking at the self-care side of things um have you done much much looking at sort of debriefing i don't know in the context maybe of uh, expeditions that don't quite go to plan or you know that sort of thing yeah so i mean so debriefing is is one of the you know there's a really good um meta-analysis done on the research on debriefing a few years ago and it it's a really good intervention that's quite quick and easy to do but has quite um, significant performance implications um, so their results suggested that just kind of an 18 minute debrief 
regularly done can lead to a 25% improvement in performance, um, which is quite a big, for something so simple, it's quite a big um, Im- impact. Um, so I think debriefs are really important, but they have to be done right. So a debrief isn't just about being given feedback um, and being told what you did well and what you didn't work too well. It's about getting the people that are involved in the debrief to be actively involved in kind of discovery and self-learning um, and trying to emphasize the the ways that people can get better at, at something. Um, and it's, so it's not really about criticizing poor performance, but it's actually about identifying what went well and what could be done better next time um, and really trying to find a way to facilitate that improvement. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose it's like learning in any environment. You want it to sort of be led by um, the people who've been part of the event, don't you? Otherwise, mm. someone has a certain objective, but that doesn't necessarily help help all the other people that are involved necessarily. Yeah, and having those multiple inputs is good because not everyone everyone has, we, we call them mental models. So people have different mental models yeah. of how something happens. Um, and so one person might see it in one way and their perception might be very clear to them. Um, whereas someone else might see it differently. So making sure that everyone has the room to input um, is is useful in that situation. Um, one, because it helps share different learning points, but two, it gets people on the same page as well. Yeah, and that's something that's, that's going to be very important sort of moving forwards as uh, particularly in in, uh, in this current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was having a look through the Support the Workers website a bit a bit earlier today and, and a few days ago as well, and there's some really interesting um, bits about um, the term moral injury, which mm-hmm. um, some people might might not have heard of before. Can, can you tell, tell, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so, so moral injury is really... Um, so so I'll, I'll start off by saying a lot of this work has been done by Victoria Williamson at King's College London, um, so a lot of the really good recent work on moral injuries from from their group. Um, it's okay. mor- moral injuries really the, um, the the kind of violation of your ethical or moral code that stems from what we call our potentially morally injurious experiences. Um, so these might, in in the case of the COVID nineteen um, virus, these might result from kind of having lack of resources and lack of staff and having to make really difficult decisions, which May lead to the you know the unnecessarily loss of life, um, where where in other situations these people might survive, but there's having to be some hard decisions being made about allocation of um, you know resourcing um, whatever sure, that is yeah. equipment or people. Um, so it can lead to these kind of um, this this idea of moral injury, which is something that kind of violates something quite deeply personal. Um, this is quite a new thing. So it's not in itself, it's not a, a mental illness. So it's not defined as a mental illness, um, but it is, you know, quite um, closely connected to PTSD. So there's a sort of moderate, strong relationship between moral injury and PTSD. Um, so in its treatment, um, it, it, similar ways of managing it to PTSD are advised. So kind of good peer support, um, trying to make sure that people are really prepared for the fact that these um potentially morally injurious experiences could happen is really important um so trying to avoid it becoming a or coming as a shock when it does occur um, but making sure people are aware up front is really critical and i guess that kind of comes back a bit to to what we were saying a minute ago about having having a good good set of debriefing to try and help 
improve outcomes, but I suppose it also comes back to having a good team dynamic as well. Yeah, and and really, I mean, really for this is really strong leadership. Um, so someone mm. that can, you know, the leaders need to be supported themselves, but um, leaders that can make decisions and take decisions um, and and actually be responsible for those decisions is really critical. So absolutely, and and for people who, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, maybe people who are um, finishing um, medical school, starting, um, you know, as as junior doctors in, in what's an unprecedented time, and you know, they may come come across these sort of issues you've discussed about resource allocation. Do you know if there's any good sort of resources or anything that they can they can look at? Obviously, support the workers is is, is very good, and I'll put a link to that in, in the podcast as well. Do you know if there's any, any other useful information out there? There's actually been quite a lot developed. So the, the British Psychological Society have pulled a few things together the past few days, um, and there's some quite nice resources on there um, designed for kind of supporting workers. The, the Intensive Care Society have some great resources on, on their website as well. Um, all okay, we'll on. Put a link, we can put a link for that in, in, the, in, the, in the podcast as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, that, that's, there's some really good stuff on there, actually. Um, and then there's, there's lots of kind of peer support networks on kind of Facebook and social media sites, um, which there seems to be quite a lot of really good information circulating on there as well. Um, so there is, there is lots of good stuff out there. I guess it's just mm. finding it. Yeah, and yeah, certainly on social media, there seems to be a wealth of of mostly useful information. Once you, you just have to apply a filter some, to yeah. some of it, I think. But uh, that kind of comes to the territory, I guess, I guess a little bit. Um, and um, I suppose one of the things we have, haven't spoken about, move, moving a bit away from from uh, from COVID nineteen, is, is your your other side project um, in extremis. Oh. Yeah, so um, I have a few. I have a couple of other side projects actually. So, Dreamus yeah. um, was something I did when I was in between. So I, I'd left my old job before, before I started at Manchester, and I was wanting to fill my fill my the time I had off in between. Um, and so I thought, what what might be quite a fun idea is to take some of the science and turn it into um, some online learning for people that are going off to extreme environments. Um, so, in Extremis, there's two courses on there. There's a introduction to psychology and extremes and then there's an advanced to psychology and extremes um and both of them are just a kind of evidence-based um, online training for people that are going to extreme places um, that draw on the latest science and understanding to try and make it um, a bit more accessible um, and something that can be applied into practice um the other thing that we're doing or we've been that we started recently um, at Manchester is a funded project connected to the Royal Geographic Society um, called Drift, and okay. we are we've been developing a, a smart mobile tool, um, and it's to design to support the performance and health of people in remote and high risk settings. Um, so it uses kind of users' input to track their psychological and behavioural health out in the field. Um, and based on the data that's inputted into the system, it it smartly um, evaluates that and pushes insights to try and help people improve their kind of health and performance. Um, oh, that so sounds it, really interesting. Yeah. So if the device is saying people are struggling, or it's, it seems to suggest people are struggling with sleep, they'll be given suggestions mm. about how they can improve their sleep. Um, or if it suggests that they're struggling with team issues, then it will give them suggestions about communication and cooperation. Um, so it's oh, a kind of smart personalized tool yeah and what sort of environments are you aiming to kind of do that in 
so this has been we've done quite a bit of upfront work already um, so there's a few different contexts that we've been involved in the kind of initial scoping um, so it's defense and security operations uh, humanitarian response expeditions um, antarctic and polar deployments in space um, so they're the kind of key user groups uh, but anyone anyone will be able to use it eventually once it's properly tested and uh, validated so sure, yeah. the website you get a wealth of experience from all those different different places as well yeah hopefully so the website for that is driftextremes.com um, oh, so people okay. can go and have a have a look and check it out if they're interested now that sounds really good and the data that comes out of that is that then going to sort of feed into sort of modeling type type things to sort of work out how people can be I suppose prepared a bit better for yeah. the different different places that they're going and things. Yeah. So we we already we've done quite a bit of work already. So we've we've been building a like a digital insight library. Um so that's gonna be form some research that's gonna be published hopefully in the next sort of six months or so. Um the data we collect from the users will be published as kind of open academic research. Um and then the actual the data that's being input into the system we'll we'll be using it to train the tool to kind of develop this sort of alg- algorithm that matches strategy to demand basically um so what people are finding difficult is matched with an appropriate um, suggestion that sounds that sounds very good i suppose it just shows what, what we can do with technology at the moment and uh, certainly a lot of things in terms of how we're interacting with technology i was i was uh so I, I work as a GP normally, and I was full of, uh, you know, everyone spends far too much time with technology and screens and, and all of this. And then uh, that's all we're doing now. I know, everything's, yeah. uh, everything's virtual, just like this, I guess, just like yeah. this podcast uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And well, I guess we're kind of com- coming to the end, end now, but um, thanks a lot for, for joining me. Um, I think we've covered some, some really, really interesting things, um, particularly, I suppose, uh, the kind of the resilience side moving forwards into sort of these uncertain weeks and months to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that you know one of the last things I'd say is that what we know and the observations we've made from people in extreme environments over the years, not just myself and Emma, but other research groups, is that mm. actually in extremists, a lot of people thrive and cope really well, um, and it's an opportunity to test skills and feel. Um, a sense of challenge and, and take satisfaction from overcoming difficulties. Um, so a large number of people will really, this will be something they look back on with pride um, in the years to come. Um, yes. and, and, you know, but some people will struggle and, and those people will need kind of support and help, but it's not, it's not an exclusively negative story. Um, you know, in, in, in it's, there's going to be difficult times ahead, but um, I think we know from human nature that, that people can, can cope with adversity. Yeah, people can thrive, can't they? And uh, some some of the best. I mean, I suppose you, you can see anyway already a bit of some of the collaborations, some of the projects that are that are happening in terms of looking at different testing, vaccines, all these different things. It's kind of never really happened on, on this kind of scale before. So I guess individually and also collectively, we will we will come through this stronger, won't we? Yeah, yeah, I I, I firmly believe that. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll, well, I guess we'll see in a few months' time. Indeed, we will. Well, great to chat. And um, I will put some of those uh, links and websites that we've uh, discussed about on, on, the, on the podcast. And, uh, and take care. Lovely. Thank you, Daniel. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, then check out our website, www.thewildernessmedic.com. 
If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode or writing a blog for us, then do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time, take care.